This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Let's bring in Adam McVicker, videographer for Global News. He's out there. Uh, the first set of funerals for those that died at Humboldt, or sorry, uh, with the Humboldt Broncos crash, are starting. Uh, well, let's talk to Adam right now and uh, get the latest on what's happening out there. Adam, thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this. Well, thank you for the opportunity, Scott. By the way, everybody here on the station is wearing a jersey of some sort. It's pretty cool to see, Adam. Uh, what do you, how does the town feel when they hear stories like this? Well, I should mention that uh, we here at Global Saskatoon, I, uh, your producer may have had a tough time trying to reach me because we just uh, took a nice group photo. All of us here are wearing our jerseys as well. The, the team did tweet out earlier that they, they are seeing this today and, and they do really appreciate the support. And, of course, that's one big thing we noticed is that a lot of the people in Humboldt, they are seeing the support coming from around the country, around the world. And, of course, it does mean a lot uh, as they try to cope with what's going on and what has been going on after this tragedy. And even the increase in uh, registration for organ donor, uh, people giving blood, the Sticks Out campaign, it's amazing to see, is it not? Well, seeing just the absolute increase in people donating donating blood and, of course, Signing up for donor registry or donor registries is uh, is insane to see because uh, you know after that inspirational story out of Lethbridge uh, from uh, from the player who donated his organs, uh, it, it's it's amazing to see that people are taking this and saying you know uh, this this kid saved so many people uh, after his after this crash and you know people want to be a part of that as well. So seeing just everyone rallying around this tragedy is one positive. Uh, coming out of such a terrible, terrible situation. Yeah, and of course, uh, hashtag sticks out for Humboldt and hashtag Jersey Day. Uh, take your pictures, uh, get involved. So, Adam, give us an update. Uh, what's happening in the next day or so? Well, so now we're starting to hear a bit more about the pe- about the players and people on that bus being laid to rest. Of course, we just heard yesterday that Dana Bronze tragically passed away, becoming the 16th person on that bus to lose their life in the accident. Uh, currently, right now in Humboldt, uh, there's a funeral and celebration of life happening for Tyler Bieber, obviously the play-by-play announcer for the Humboldt Broncos. He was 29 years old. They're doing that right now. And then over the next few days, we're hearing a few more about some of the players. And uh, we're hearing as well a celebration of life going to be happening in Edmonton for four of the players at Rogers Place. Uh, the families will be speaking, and it should be a, a beautiful tribute to their lives, um, as well as multiple on the weekend, including the head coach, Darcy Hogan. Uh, he will be, uh, it will be held at the uh, Humboldt Uniplex uh, Saturday as well. So plenty happening on Saturday, and uh, in Saskatoon, one on Monday for uh, for the local player here who happened to be on that team. And Adam, as you pointed out, uh, you know, this has pretty much all been centralized around Humboldt for the last little while. Now, as these funerals uh, start to take place, these players obviously from all over the place. So you're going to see this spread out into various parts of the West. Well, last night in Spruce Grove, Alberta, where uh, Parker Tobin and Connor Lucan, they played in the Alberta Junior Hockey League for the Spruce Grove Saints. They held a, a, a beautiful tribute last night, a beautiful memorial at their arena. And I believe it was, it was they filled the arena and the lineup was all around the corner. It's amazing to see the people coming out in all these different communities who have a connection with these players. And, and you know, as the national spotlight kind of leaves Humboldt a little bit, because I do, it did feel kind of from the, the people there, they were being nice about it, but, you know, they they need some time now. The media is slowly but moving out of the town, and and 
it's amazing to see now that we're seeing all these memorials popping up around the country, the absolute support these people are getting. And, and it, it truly is a, it, it's a hockey thing, but it's a Canadian thing as well. And a human and a human thing that these people are coming together to, to celebrate these players that maybe some didn't even have a, a, a connection with. They just want to be there to show that support. And, and it, it, it means a lot to the town of Humboldt. It really has. And, you know, to speak from, you know, the other perspective from the rest of the country, and I certainly don't pretend to speak for anyone else, but, uh, you, you know, for us, it, it's, it's, it's our way of coming together. Like, you know, not even knowing these people, knowing their families the way you guys do or the people that are down there. This just seems, it, it seems that the country needed to come together, and this has brought us together. It, it seems to have really united the country. I feel like that was one way a lot of people have been trying to deal with this, this tragedy. And, and I first noticed that once I arrived in Humboldt on Sunday, seeing people in town doing what they could to help out. Uh, the owner of the t-shirt shop, I keep bringing up this place because they were one of the first ones to start this campaign to you know, Humboldt Strong, get put it on the t-shirt and then donate the funds to the team. Um, he, the owner of the shop told me, you know, we've been so busy trying to put these shirts together, you know, it has the tragedy hasn't really sunk in, but this is their way of bit of a distraction from the sadness and the grieving to yeah. to help out and, and and support these people in the way they know how to support people. So a lot of people coming together, organizing that vigil, that was their way of doing it to to distract themselves a bit from the grief, but also help cope and support the families that need the support. Uh, as you mentioned, um, well, tomorrow it will be one week. So what is the town like one week later? Um, you know, sooner or later, we have to move on. We have to get to get along. And, and, and as you mentioned, Humboldt needs to take the town back. Well, I, I, exactly right. Sunday was probably the peak of the international media and the national media spotlight being on the town of Humboldt, seeing that the world's eyes on that town during that vigil uh, was truly incredible to see. And then slowly but surely, uh, Monday morning, things already quieted down a little bit from that Sunday. And then Tuesday morning, um, the arena was probably the quietest it's been since uh, prior to the crash. So slowly the media has been moving out. Uh, people are starting to pull their teams out, and, and it's starting to quiet down in town a little bit because, you know, there's still a town there trying to recover. Even though we're not seeing it as maybe as much on the news, not so much in the national and international media spotlight, there's still a town there where people are grieving, and, and they were being very nice about it, you know, saying, it's, you know, thank you for the coverage, thank you so much for all you've been doing, but maybe now it's time to, to move out of there a little bit and let them take that time to grieve. So it's a lot quieter in Humboldt as it's been over the past little while. There were thousands of people there. So I'd imagine that people, uh, it's a bit quieter today than it even was yesterday and the day before. Talk about the arena. Um, it, that seemed to be a central meeting place for everybody. We all saw the flowers around uh, the logo at Center Ice and such. Uh, is it back to operational normal now? What happens with that? Uh, I know the... For, I know the half the ice was was uh, was taped off and, and barricaded off with the memorials and, and still around the center ice. I know that the high school attached to the arena they did let the students kind of go into the rink and take a few minutes and 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 pay their respects to the players. One thing I did notice when we were in the arena, of course, is that many people who go to the games and and want to support this team they were going into the rink 
and sitting in their seats they usually would for a Humboldt Broncos game and just taking a few minutes to reflect and, and take time to to pay their respects to the players. It, it became a, a central place, of course, to drop things off. It was the central place in the town, but as it was prior to this accident, the Humboldt Broncos are this town's identity, and, and the rink was that place, the center of the town where everybody came to gather. So it was like that during the memorial, but of course, um, as the the days rolled on, it became a place of comfort for a lot of people to come by, and it was very silent in the rink the entire time. Once you entered the, where the ice surface was, it was very silent and a nice place of comfort for a lot of people to come and just take a few minutes. So um, that's kind of what it's been like the entire the entire time since that vigil. It's almost like the the arena is a place of worship now. A little bit, a little yeah. bit. But prior, the townspeople were telling me that, like, if it was happening in Humboldt, it's happening at the arena. So this place has is a is a place where people gather prior to this, and and it will be after uh, all this is over as well. Adam, what it's what's it going to be like after the last funeral? You know, whenever it, that is, I'm presuming by the by the end of the week. Once the last um, memorial ceremony, whatever you want to call it, has been had, what happens then? I know these memorials are kind of planned over the next few weeks. Um, so, you know, it's still hard to tell of what's going to happen, you know. I mean, people are talking about uh, in, in the legislature here in, in uh, Saskatchewan, talking about, okay, how could we prevent these from happening? Obviously, things are, you know, the roads out there, the, the highway roads are still being driven on to this day. Uh, they were talking about perhaps rumble strips and things like that, so maybe talking about prevention. But as to what's, what that town's going to be like, I believe that town's changed forever now. There's no way to go back to at least the normalcy there was prior to this crash. I mean, they're going to find a new normal eventually. That's when that's what the school board was talking about with the students, that you know maybe no, they're not super excited to go back to math and science class, but getting back into that little bit of normal routine will be helping. So yeah. I believe it's just about finding that normalcy after this and, and and after trying to cope and and moving on with some sort of routine after. I believe that's what we're going to see. But, of course, we'll be thinking about Humboldt for a very, very, very long time. What about any more on the accident at this point, Adam? Um, not too much more. The RCMP did say yesterday that these types of investigations, because of the amount of evidence there is, it takes weeks to put everything together, but they've dedicated specific resources uh, to the, the crash investigation to hopefully speed things up from a normal investigation that would take weeks so people can get answers and they can get to the bottom of exactly what happened. So many people involved with emergency services uh, involved in this investigation. They said they have some sort of information from one of the vehicles. Uh, the truck is in Saskatoon in a salvage yard right now um, where, where police have been investigating. So I believe it's only a matter of time now before some more information starts to come out on that. But they've been very quiet about it. A few updates here and there, but um, they're, they're sticking to their investigation. I'm sure we'll, we'll hear very soon about exactly or have a general idea of exactly what happened. I know that obviously we can't, you know, all this is speculation at this point because, as you said, we just don't know all the details. That being said, we saw the footage that you guys had shot of, of, of the cab, the truck in that in that yard, and it looked like it was relatively unscathed. Obviously, it had gone over on its side, but it looked relatively Mm -hmm. unscathed, even the nose of the vehicle. So it appears that the bus hit the side of the truck. I mean, can we say that yet? That's what speculation has has been around right now, is that the truck may have been traveling westward on Highway 335, the bus traveling north on Highway 35. Who knows what happened in those seconds there, but it sounds like that 
the bus did hit the truck. So there's questions about, you know, what did the truck stop? Did the truck see anything at all? And it, and it sounds the bus may have hit the truck in its cargo rather than exactly. the cab itself. Yeah, so that's what it appeared to be. Yeah, so we're we're still here. we're still trying to put those pieces together, and of course we're hoping RCMP uh, will come out soon with a with a bit more information to to put the pieces together on this. And from what we know about the truck driver, only on the job a short time. Uh, that's what we're hearing right now. Only on the job a short time, relatively uninjured in the crash, and was provided immediately with mental health and grief counseling support, which is needed, of course, because yeah. uh, you know his intention wasn't to go out no. and take sixteen lives that day. No. But you know he so that mental health support has been put there for the driver. We're slowly getting more and more information that the company has been uh, suspended right now. Their license has been suspended by the Alberta government, pending an investigation with the Saskatchewan government as well. So there's plenty more we're going here over the coming weeks, but I believe this is far from over. Uh, one last question, Adam. What's it like at that intersection now? Uh, the memorial is growing. Um, a map has been placed down in that area. People have been bringing things um, to that area. I haven't been back since uh, before they cleared the, the, the wreckage out of that area, but it sounds like many people coming by, paying their respects, dropping things off, flowers, signs, crosses, everything into that area to, to pay their respects and to reflect on what happened on, on Friday night. Adam McVicker has been with us, videographer, Global News. Adam, thanks so much for uh, uh, the coverage here. Uh, and, of course, uh, pass along our condolences whenever uh, possible. Thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. The Ontario Government's Cannabis Retail Corporation has revealed several announcements in regards to the plans of sale and how this is all going to roll out when it finally does. To talk more about all of this, Michael Armstrong is with us, Associate Professor, Brockman, sorry, Brock University, Goodman School of Business, and with us now. Michael, thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this. Well, it's nice to chat with you. All right. So, uh, obviously, uh, I, I'm thinking what's challenging here is every single province seems to be doing this differently. How does Ontario compare to others? Well, uh, the general trend is that Ontario and province to the east of us are going with government retailers, uh, basically following their liquor store examples, whereas the western provinces, the prairies and B.C., are uh, either partly or entirely going with uh, private uh, retailers. Um, and that has implications in terms of uh, how many stores we're going to see. Uh, there's going to be far more out on the prairies, for example, than we're going to see in Ontario. Uh, and also in terms of how they'll operate, what we're going to see, how the products will be, uh, you know, just whether they're visible, how they're going to be described, and so forth. Uh, obviously, there's always been a debate about between provinces as far as liquor sales and how one does it differently than the other. Uh, obviously, what each province seems to have done is used a model similar to what they use for distribution of uh, alcohol. Is one better than the other? Is it up to each province to decide what's best for them? Obviously, that's the case. But is one better than the other? Um, I think there's a trade-off there. The uh, and and this is one thing I, I am. I'm, although I'm critical of some of the things that the governments are doing, I'm sympathetic to the fact that they have to trade off a lot of complex uh, priorities, like they're trying to uh, minimize uh, harm, promote public health, but at the same time uh, fight uh, organized crime, who's currently supplying all these uh, products, uh, and also worry about things like impaired driving and so forth. So it's, it's a really complex issue that they're having to go through very quickly. Um, 
having said that, uh, the public sector retailers, well, you know, they're more closely controlled, so we might reasonably expect, just like with the LCBO, uh, it's going to be kind of a more, you know, if you want to say professional or neutral, uh, whereas with private stores, there's always a temptation to maybe uh, uh, not break the law, but certainly you just want to sell as much as you can to make as much profit as you can. Mm-hmm. So the private, uh, or sorry, the uh, public sector cannabis stores like Ontario will use probably will do a better job at public education, uh, the harm reduction objectives that government has, whereas the private sector stores will probably do a better job at customer service, uh, competing the strongest against the black market, and therefore probably do the best uh, in terms of uh, squeezing out the black market. Hmm. So that's kind of in, in the general sense. Uh, you talked about uh, announcements that happened yesterday. How has this changed? Give us an update. So what came out yesterday um, was uh, a set of announcements from the Ontario Cannabis Retail Corporation. Uh, the ones that caught a little bit of press uh, were just in terms of some of the executive appointments and in terms of locations of retail stores. Uh, me as a business prof, though, of course, I dug in more into some of the business details. And uh, what I s- see there are some indications of what we're going to experience uh, as customers going into these retail outlets and also in terms of on the, uh, the back end of the store, their, their supplies. So on the supply side, uh, the Ontario Cannabis Retail Corporation has, has asked for, um, issued what they call a call for products. So they're asking suppliers, make us some offers, right. tell us what products you can provide, how much, uh, what pricing will be involved, that kind of thing, and with a submission date of the 2nd of May. Um, contrast that with Quebec, which yesterday announced that they had signed supply contracts with six suppliers. Mm. So Quebec has already locked in a supply for their retail, which, as you hinted, um, it's going to be part of their liquor, uh, their SIQ uh, liquor store uh, network uh, will be running their retail. So they've got a supply locked down, whereas Ontario is only just at the point of asking about supply. Um, so we're behind there. How do you, wh- wh- why would that be? Uh, well, I think it's just a question of there's a lot of things to get to, to work through. Each These uh, distribution networks are being set up pretty much from scratch. Uh, Quebec, I guess, has gotten through the details faster. Mm-hmm. Um, what, the reason it's important is that there's a, uh, if you want to call it, I wouldn't call it a forecast, but maybe a guesstimate within the industry that there's going to be a shortage of product initially. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, with all the provinces starting sales pretty much at the same time, uh, there might not be enough uh, cannabis to go around. Now, in the long term, that won't be an issue, I don't think, because there'll be there's a whole lot of production uh, companies that are starting up. There's probably going to be a surplus uh, of cannabis, you know, maybe a year from now. But in the first couple of months, there could be a shortage. So if Ontario hasn't locked in supply yet, well, the other provinces, to varying extents, have. Uh, we might not find a lot on the on the store shelves those first uh, couple weeks. What about cross border shopping from province to province, or even mail order? Uh, you know, h- how do you reinforce these these restrictions different from each province? Can, can you just go from one to the other to purchase it? Can you just uh, order online? How are they going to regulate that? Uh, how are well, they going to the, police it? The devil's in the details there. Um, that is something that each province is going to have to deal with. 
you're right. Um, will this just be online, will this this be the same as alcohol? You know, and that guy from New Brunswick that drove across into Quebec <laughs> to buy some. I mean, are we going to get the same thing? Well, uh, as, as I just said, the devil's in details, I, and that's not really worked out yet. Will we have uh, interprovincial free trade in cannabis? Um, we're not sure. It will probably be more free trade than there is alcohol. Um, but no, the provinces. I don't think they won't be selling. You know, the Ontario website won't sell to customers outside Ontario. Uh, now, if you are living in some other province, you drive into Ontario, you and you place an order to deliver to an Ontario uh, address. I imagine you can get the product, but that'd be no different than going into an Ontario store while you're here. Right. Um, so, uh, but you're right. There are a lot of details, and one of them is uh, cannabis tourism. Um, I found this interesting because obviously they're talking about 40 locations initially, um, but they're not around tourist areas. Well, that, but then again, I don't know that that goes back to the old, when you put it down in the entertainment district where there's alcohol, I mean, how how are they going to do this and, and, and police it this way? That is something that again is being worked out. Now there is, uh, there are some rules like the cannabis stores can't be too close to elementary or, or high schools. Yeah, but we're hearing uh, stories already that there's one, you know, 450 meters from this or that or, or or what have you. I mean, does it make sense to keep it out of tourist locations and yet have it relatively close to residential areas? Um, well, that's, again, one of those things that yeah. government is trying to balance many different objectives, you know, because there's a large part of the population that really would not rather not have any of it. Uh, and yeah. certainly they don't want yeah. the neighborhood, but then there's another large part of the population that says, well, hey, make it convenient. If you don't want me to go to the black market, you've got to give me a convenient retailer. So, for example, the uh, the 40 stores, we know the cities where they're going, mm-hmm. uh, but what was new yesterday is they're just starting to announce some of the addresses. So, for example, uh, Kingston, the, the first store in Kingston is going into a uh, a shopping district, basically out in one of the western suburbs. Mm-hmm. So kind of near Best Buy, uh, right. PetSmart, you know, those In big the big box. box store. Yeah. yeah. So it's going to be on that same kind of strip. So, you know, that'd be a little bit maybe like a Hamilton equivalent might be there's a, uh, a power center near the 403 right. and Lincoln yep. Alexander Parkway. Sure, yep. Um, that's kind of an equivalent. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's a location that, you know, for residents, that's pretty easy to drive to. Um, but it's not downtown. It's not someplace that tourists are likely to be going unless they go out of their way to get to. Michael, is there a conscious effort to keep it out of tourist areas? That's something I think government's still sorting out. I know uh, that's a question that's come up in my Because is this going to be, well, let me ask you from a business prof standpoint, is this going to drive uh, tourism? I think there are some uh, entrepreneurs who would like it very much to drive on uh, tourism. I think there's probably some others who would like to, you know, close their eyes and say, well, no, we don't want cannabis tourists. Yeah. Um, you know, in my own case, I live in the Niagara area. Niagara Falls is supposed to get one of the stores. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm really interested to see, well, is it going to be uh, right down by the waterfalls where all the tourists are? Sure. Uh, is it going to be at a more like a suburban shopping center? Or are they going to stick at kind of an outerway corner where they can get... Um, uh, maybe a cheap rent and where local people won't complain about it. Um, or are they just going to put someplace where they can actually find a, a vacant store because that's another issue. Yeah. Uh, these aren't being built from scratch. They're, they're renting stores that already exist because they don't have time to build. 
Uh, are provinces working together on this? Are they trying to share ideas, or is it you do it your way, I'll do it mine? I hope they're sharing ideas, but what seems to be coming out looks a lot more like each province doing their own thing. Uh, as you notice, um, they're, to a large extent, following their own traditions in terms of uh, liquor retailing. Um, a lot of the provinces are using their, in fact, just about all the provinces are using their liquor distributor to also be their cannabis distributor or as a subsidiary. Um, the ones like Ontario and Quebec that have provincial liquor stores are going with provincial cannabis stores, uh, whereas the western provinces, where they, particularly Alberta, where they have uh, privatized liquor stores, uh, they're going to have privatized cannabis stores. That being said, is the law across the board that they can't be mixed with alcohol retail at all? Uh, or does that change in some provinces? That's a decision for each province. Now, I'm, I have to think, most of the provinces have said they're keeping it separate. But I recall there's some exceptions. I think BC has said uh, when you've got a small town that won't support a standalone store, right. I believe they're making the exception and okay, an alcohol store could sell cannabis. I seem to recall uh, one of the maritime provinces, I think it's Nova Scotia, is again, probably because they have a small population, is going to let their liquor stores actually sell the cannabis directly. I mean, that's a very practical approach. It, it makes logistics a lot easier. Uh, you know, have one delivery truck, do both. Uh, the stores already d deal with issues like uh, customer ID, uh, government regulation. So it's kind of a natural thing to do from a business perspective. Um, but I know the medical um, and health-oriented uh, um, voters aren't, in favor of that. What will, or do we have any indication at this point what in-store will look like? How will they educate consumers on what's there? Well, that was actually one of the other things that came out of yesterday's announcements, although you had to dig a bit deeper to find it. Uh, because when the Ontario Cannabis Retail Corporation asked for uh, product proposals, um, if you dug into the documentations of spreadsheet, you could start to see, okay, what do they want the suppliers to tell them? And that kind of implies something about what the retail stores will do. So, for example, uh, they want a short product description for each uh, potential cannabis product. And they give as an example, an earthy product with citrus notes and a subtle hint of eucalyptus. Um, so kind of like what you would see in a wine Wait, I was just store. about to say, are we talking about wine here? It sounds, <laughs> all of a sudden um, you've started wine tasting me on, on me down there. Uh, well, federal law, unfortunately, is not going to, well, fortunately or unfortunately, depends on your perspective. Federal law won't allow tasting. No. Uh, but you're right. The, the descriptions sound very much like what uh, you would see in a wine store. Um, they also would like to know details. Okay, well, how big are the packages? Yeah, okay, that's kind of mundane. But uh, for me, because I teach courses on quality, I was interested to see that the, uh, they call for products is saying, okay, tell us what percentage of or concentration of the main active ingredients will be in your products. Right. So they want to see a range, what percentage of THC, which is the drug that gives you the high, and what percentage of the CBD, which is the drug that uh, apparently might have some medical benefits. So that's a really good first step towards some quality control uh, that you don't get when you go to your uh, current uh, supplier, if you happen to be going to a current supplier. Um, that's a much more formalized uh, approach to the product. Actually, no, we actually expect consistency in the product. 
something else that was interesting to see is they're saying, okay, how do you describe this? Is this your good product, your better product, your best? Mm. And what's the suggested retail price? So the fact they're asking those questions is telling me um, that the price uh, of the products is not going to be all the same. Because up to now, when government officials have talked about pricing, they've kind of thrown out one number. Like they say, okay, we expect it to sell for about $10 a gram, including taxes. Right. But the fact that the uh, Ontario Corporation is asking these questions suggests, no, there's going to be different prices, just like in a liquor store. You can buy something, a cheap bottle of Plonk right. uh, for a low price, or you can spend more and get kind of the premium. Um, it looks like we're going to see that in the cannabis stores. Um, you've got those descriptive terms. Uh, you've got the concentrations, just like we have alcohol concentrations. Uh, so I think that's a kind of a preview or a hint of what we'll see in the store. We'll see some descriptions like wine, but we won't see the wine. We won't see the cannabis. Yeah, That's going to be all kept behind the shelf. All we will see is information on computer screens. Like the old days when you used to go in there with your dad and he'd fill out the pad of paper. Well, back in the good and or they, bad old days, yes. Exactly, and they'd exactly. rip it off and they'd hand it to the guy and he'd go into that back room and bring you out your bottle or your Mickey wrapped up in a bag. And they do your best to make you feel like you were uh, somehow in a shameful uh, situation and you're supposed to kind of... They toss it to you out the back door. That's right, exactly. Uh, I don't think it'd be quite that bad with the cannabis stores, but that's kind of, yeah, what the Ontario uh, retailing approach is. Whereas, for example, um, I think it's, uh, I can't remember if it's Nova Scotia or New Brunswick, uh, the products will be locked up, but they'll be behind a glass display case. So you can actually see the packages. You can read the labels. Um, so you won't be able to pick them up and you won't be able to sample them, but, uh, much more, uh, direct contact than, uh, what Ontario proposes. Uh, we've certainly seen the wine industry and in, especially in Niagara evolve and in, in what it's become. You talk about tastings, uh, people are complaining that there's no place to smoke because there'll be no lounges. You could only can do it inside your house and people don't want to do that. How do you think, what is life going to be like next fall? Um, it's going to be a work in progress, an experiment in progress, because I think as just like with liquor stores have evolved uh, from that dark, old, uh, shameful prohibition area era kind of thing to what's actually a pretty decent retail store now that, these days, um, I suspect that's going to happen with cannabis probably a lot faster, but it's not going to happen overnight. Um, so, yes, initially there's going to only be 40 stores in Ontario. Uh, even their two-year plan is only 150. Now, if you think about 150, that's about the same number of Walmarts in Ontario. So those aren't, you know, down the street neighborhood. That's okay. You get in the car and drive hmm. a fair distance to get there. Uh, compare that to, say, Alberta, they're going to have hundreds of stores in the first year for a much smaller population. They're going to have much more convenient access which on the downside means, yeah, there's probably going to be more people using it, but on the upside means they're going to do a much better job of competing with the black market. So depending on which policy objective you want to give priority to, uh, Alberta is actually going to do a much better job than Ontario. Hmm. Um, like you mentioned, lounges, uh, if you can't smoke uh, because you live in a non-smoking apartment building or you don't want to smell up your house, you don't really have a lot of options in the, uh, immediately in Ontario. But, yeah, probably in the long term, the government will start to relax that a bit. Uh, they've already asked for uh, uh, people to comment on uh, the idea, at least, of having such lounges. 
because again, unless they make that opportunity available, there's going to be a certain part of the market that's going to stick with the black market. Mm. They can get what they want there. Uh, likewise, initially, you won't be able to buy edible products like uh, you know the proverbial chocolate brownies. Uh, if you want those, initially, you have to stick with the black market. Um, but I think, that, but that's supposed to change within about a year. Michael Armstrong has been with us, Associate Professor, Brock University, Goodman School of Business, talking about uh, Ontario's retail cannabis industry. Michael, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Oh, it's been fun to chat with you. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Uh, as we've talked about uh, all week long, there's there's been all kinds of uh, of gestures and, and things that have happened that have uh, that have helped us get over the humbled situation and uh, such a dark cloud that started last weekend. Tomorrow's the week anniversary of, of that horrific crash. And whether it's uh, organ donations, which registration has gone up, blood, don't, blood donations have gone up. Uh, we saw the people putting uh, pictures of the jerseys or the sticks out campaign. Why do we do this? Let's bring in Gary Derenfeld, social worker, yoursocialworker.com, to find out more. He is with us now. Gary, thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this. My pleasure. This is an important conversation. You know, it's, man, I, I just remember, and oddly enough, my, we, we played in a hockey tournament last weekend, and this happened on the Friday, and, and people weren't necessarily talking about it a, a lot, but you could feel it. You could, you could, you could feel it hanging over the 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 families and in, in the arena that we were in, and such. Um, are you surprised this is, has affected us the way it has? You know, I, actually, I'm not surprised, Scott. You know, can, you know, hockey. Well, it's officially lacrosse, but unofficially, hockey is the national sport. We have tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands, of kids across Canada at all ages. And forget the kids and adults as well, in all sorts of hockey leagues. And we look at what happened in Humboldt, and we said, it could be us. We're but for the grace of God. This is an incident that every Canadian can relate to. Whether or not you play hockey, we all, we all know somebody who plays hockey. And um, it's hit our collective conscience consciousness unconsciousness it's just hit us all as canadians does this unite unite the country when we need it in other words are there times when we're more emotional about this than other times but just with where we are now we need this to bring us together we're looking for an excuse to bring some to bring us together to unite us no i don't think we're looking for an excuse uh, at this point in time in, in canadian history i think this is part of what makes us canadian is that regardless of whatever is going on, that when there is a crisis, um, we all want the same things. Uh, Peace, security, well-being for our loved ones. And this is one of those moments where that was shaken to the core. We can all relate, and we're going to mourn collectively. So why a Jersey Day? Why the Sticks Out campaign? Why do we do this? And, you know, let's not forget the uh, the GoFundMe page, I think, is well over $7 million, $8 million now. Yeah, the, the, the issue becomes, what are, what are the gestures we can make that say that you are in our thoughts, you are in our prayers? You know, you know we don't want to just say it to the wall. We want to say it to all Canadians. We want the gesture to be picked up, and we want it to reach those families 
throughout Saskatchewan and those families affected by by the tragedy, by the, the wreckage, by the loss of life, we want them to know that we are with you in this and these are our simple gestures through which we reach out to you to lend our support. How uh, how is this helping Humboldt? How how important is it for them to understand the rest of the country? And we were talking to them today, and, and I said, we're all here at the radio station wearing jerseys, and, you know, here we are a couple of provinces away. They're happy to hear that. What does it do for that small town knowing that this has affected the rest of the country this way, and, and people are doing this? When we experience a loss, whoever we are, <clears throat> that loss can, in our grief, we can feel isolated. And then the more isolated the more pronounced our grief. Through the solidarity, through the support, through the reaching out, through the camaraderie, through the togetherness, it helps us manage our grief. It makes it real. It makes it real, like we can't hide from it, but it helps us to manage it. It tells us that we're not so uh, all alone in trying to figure this out. This is what does support people at these times. It's why, uh, regardless of the loss and regardless of our faith, with any loss, we come together, friends, family, community. This is the Canadian community coming together. Uh, Increases in those visiting blood donor clinics, organ donations up. Uh, How do you explain that? Again, um, we look at this and go, you know, where but for the grace of God, go, I, this could be me, this could be a loved one, this could be a friend, this could be in my community. And so I want to do those things I can to provide support in the, in the terrible event that this might happen here too, wherever here is for you. That we realize that there is some randomness uncertainty to life and we want to be somewhat prepared uh so that we can be helpful um you know uh uh i i became an organ donor this week and i'm not doing this uh for for you know gratitude or anything but this is something that back in the old days when you would sign your license, I used to do all the time. And then when they changed to the new system, I just never updated it. I never, just too many things to do, just never had time. And it was right. always sort of one of those things that I got to get around to doing. And I was actually had the lady on from uh, the Trillium Gift of Life Network, and she was actually telling me how to do it. And I was following along online, and I just felt compelled to do it. Uh, and, and every other time, I always made an excuse. And before I knew it, Gary, I'd blink my eyes and I was in. Um, yeah. and, and here's what I was surprised about. Number one, that I did it. And number two, how much better I felt after I did do it. Mm-hmm. And I think that was the point that I was trying to pass on to other listeners was, you know, I mean, everybody's got different reasons and what they want to do. And some, this is, this, this is comfortable for some people. It's not comfortable for others, but it's yeah. something that I chose and worked for me. But I, I think the point that I was trying to make was uh, I physically felt different afterwards. Yeah. You, you know, uh, I've said it before I'm Jewish, 
By Jewish custom, we bury our dead within 24 hours, assuming it's not the Sabbath. Mm-hmm. And in, when we're at graveside, those who are around graveside, we actually take turns shoveling in the dirt yeah. until the coffin is fully covered. Yeah. This is seen as the greatest gift that you can give to the deceased. And the reason it's the greatest gift is because it is the one gift the deceased cannot pay back. Yeah. When we sign our donor card or when we go online to, to make this known, this is the greatest gift that we can give to another. It is so selfless. It is, you know, it's the last thing that we can do for another, and that's why we feel good. Hmm. What does this town do as it goes through mourning? I mean, tomorrow will be the week anniversary of this horrific crash. I remember that first weekend, it was just uh, horrific as we were finding out all of the details and and this and so on and so <coughs> forth. Now they've gone past that shock and trauma. Um, not, I'm sorry, I'm, I don't mean to dim- dismiss it that they're over it, but that, that stage is gone. The, the, the wreckage has been cleared. There's been memorials. Uh, the funerals are starting. Uh, there's been all of these well wishes from across the world and across the country and, and gestures of, of jerseys and sticks and such. What does this town go through a week out? Good question. So in another week's time, the media will have, have dissipated. We will be gone. We won't be talking about this. We'll be on to other stories, but the survivors... Um, they continue to deal with this in the days, weeks, months, and years, and even lifetimes yeah. to come. And so what I would say to folks is uh, continue to reach out. <clears throat> it could be in a month's time. It could be in a half a year's time. Don't assume people are well. <clears throat> if you're connected personally, pick up the phone, pay a visit, send a, a text or an email, Ask how they are doing months from now. <clears throat> because loss hits people in different ways at different times. Mm-hmm. There's going to be significant events through the year when that person's birthday was, an anniversary, Christmas, Valentine's Day. And the loss will be felt more acutely with going through those first experiences on those special days. So even though we will have left, this will continue to linger and go on for the survivors. The degree to which we keep them in our thoughts, reach out and provide that support, helps ease them on their journey of integrating this experience into the rest of their lives. What if you were one of the people on that bus that survived? Do you feel lucky? Do you feel guilty? And you may feel both simultaneously. It's not either or. It can be that and. As humans, we're very complex beings. And as complex beings, we can hold contradictory or seemingly contradictory emotions inside ourselves at the same time. If, however, those emotions 
are overwhelming. If they interfere with one's ability to get on with life, to, to manage oneself, to take care of oneself, then for sure we want you to get counseling. We want you to get help. We want you to get support. What about the truck driver? Uh, we've heard little about them, him or her, we don't know. Um, that, that being, I guess it is a, a male, we do know that. Uh, but just a week on the job, uh, the accident's still under investigation. Uh, obviously somebody's, well, we don't know. We don't know what's going to happen. At the end of the day, uh, how, does, how does someone deal with this who, who could be responsible? Well, it seems as if the community has already been uh, generous to this person, indicating... And what that, does that say, Gary, right there? I, what wonderful people. What wonderful people that they can say with certainty that we don't believe that this person woke up that day and sought to cause death and carnage. We don't believe that that person entered into this job thinking... I'm going to hurt somebody today. And so with that, they're expressing um, wonderful forgiveness, the likes of which we may never see. But what is it like for that individual? That person will carry the guilt of this experience, and that will be profound. Part of how we can manage guilt is through service to others where we feel that we are doing what we can to pay back. Quite frankly, I would worry for that person's mental health and for depression and for anxiety to follow and for overwhelming guilt and would hope that that person may find comfort, solace, and support um, through the well wishes of others too. How important is it for this town now, and I'm sure tomorrow will be difficult for them, um, but as this weekend progresses and as people leave, as news teams leave, that sort of thing, um, are, are they, do they want people to leave now and just let them be? I, I don't know any better way to say what I just said. Right. So, you know, uh, I can't speak on their behalf. Would they like people to leave now? But people will leave. And it will provide another kind of mourning. The mourning that comes when we're by ourselves, when we reflect, when we feel uh, the loneliness, when the person, when we're not distracted and we can feel the loss of where is that person? They're not in our home. They're not coming to breakfast. They're not at practice. It will be felt more acutely once um, all eyes on them have gone away. And we want them to have more support then, but that'll be um, through friends and family gathering in a more uh, private way. And we want them to take advantage of that. And we also want them to take advantage of grief counseling, where persons like myself or social workers or, or counselors, they come in to help you make sense of this. Not that we can, but to help us, I think the better word is to integrate this experience into our lives, to validate our feelings, to help us not be scared of the enormity of our feelings 
And so grief counseling should and likely will figure prominently uh, for the well-being of many of these people. <clears throat> Gary Dierenfeld has been with us, social worker, yoursocialworker.com. Uh, Gary, as always, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Hey, thank you, Scott, for such um, a thoughtful discussion on this. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.